Welcome to the first episode of 2022 of The Daily Horror Habit, podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie reviews and discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always, be warned, these reviews and discussions might include spoilers. So, how have you all been? Healthy, happy, and optimistic for the future, I hope. Sure, the new year is an exciting time with a new bevy of horror delights on the horizon, but no matter the size of the dumpster fire you'd attribute to 2021 being, it produced a hell of a lot of good horror movies. And while I have a list of my favorites from the past year, I already covered those on uh, my fellow horror brethren, Devon Taylor's podcast, The Bloody Blunt Cinema Club, which you guys should go give a listen to as he just launched a new season of the podcast with a brand new co-host. So rather than repeat myself, I figured I would highlight 2021 horror films that I actually only really just got around to watching. Also, if I don't mention a notable flick of 2021, say something like Censor, I probably covered it in its own episode. So be sure to check out the extensive back catalog of Daily Horror Habit episodes. Now, to be clear, the movies that I'm about to discuss are not all my favorites of 2021, and some aren't even necessarily much better than something you would throw on kind of haphazardly when they premiere on whichever streaming service login you're borrowing from your third cousin's girlfriend's stepdad. But they at the very least succeed in one or more areas of horror that they dabble in. So without further ado, let's dive into some 2021 horror honorable mentions. So first things first, it's going to be Titany by Julia Duquoneau. I did a top six favorite horror movies of the year for the podcast uh, Bloody Blunt Cinema Club that I mentioned earlier, and this would have been my seventh pick if I had had that option. Um, this is a film that, you know, it's going to be maybe a little annoying here. I've read out the gate and say it's one to, that's very, very difficult to describe uh, because no matter what I say, uh, you really aren't prepared for this in the same way that I was not. Um, I think that words such as like body horror have been getting thrown around a lot with this movie. And while Titney does feature a heavy body horror element to it, at the end of the day, it's not the feature of the film that I think is the strongest or necessarily why this film is so remarkable. In terms of what I will say about the movie, I'll say that it has two of the best performances of 2021, in my opinion, which would be Agatha Roussel, uh, who is actually in her acting debut in Titany, uh, which was mind-blowing to me, uh, given the range that she has in this movie. And, you know, sometimes I would say with more abstract or generally just like weird premises with a film such as uh, Titany, it's the thing where, yeah, I could see an actor that's very seasoned or has this kind of storied career diving into something like that and seeking out that challenge. So for an actress to make their debut with something that is this abstract, this generally fucking weird movie, um, that, I mean, I couldn't imagine like the first reaction to reading the script of this movie because you're just kind of like, how would any of this work? What is this actually about? How does this lean into the various genre influences that it draws so heavily from? Um, it is quite an experience to say the least in seeing it. And, you know, I would, I would love to see it just a maybe a basic table read of it or something just to see the people's first time reactions to the twists and turns that Titany takes because uh, it's, like I said, a pretty wild film that does a lot and it's incredibly ambitious after um, the director's first film, which was Raw, which is another film that's like very weird that dabbles in various subgenres of horror that I'm a fan of, but at the same time, it does so in a way that it takes that weirdness, but it's actually saying something about that or rather it's saying something through the general twists and turns that it takes rather than just like being weird for the sake of being weird which i think some people maybe 
have misinterpreted uh, certain moments of Titany 4. Um, I'll also say that Vincent Linden does a fantastic job as well. He, uh, you know, we did, I did the uh, awards for the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club again, which I'm referenced now. Um, and I gave him my favorite male performance of the year just because he does such a great job of capturing so many different elements that again, you would not be expecting from the outset or from the trailer for the movie. A lot of sort of like David Cronenberg body horror comparisons were getting thrown around and those aren't the moments that stick with me. It's these two performances, you know, they are extremely viscerally emotional, violent performances that really do complement this sophomore effort from uh, from Julia Duquesneau. Um, and it's the type of thing where, I, you know, I don't want to get into whether or not I prefer it to Raw or not, but I think that this movie really is these two central performances that are tied around a concept that I think they bring the most out of. Um, it's the type of movie that I would compliment it in. I can't imagine these two not being in it. Um, sometimes, you know, talking about whether or not like this movie is notable for the premise, the execution, or the performances. I think this movie is nothing without its performances in a wide regard to the different things that I've mentioned already. Um, I think that these two really take this concept and ground us, considering how weird the movie gets and everything and the different kind of abstract directions it takes. These two ground us in, in a emotional performance that at the core is about relationships, and I don't want to say anything else than that. And I think that that is the film's strongest aspect in that for the elements of it that maybe don't necessarily work for me, I kept coming back to these two that are terrific. You should definitely do yourself a favor and put this at the top of your watch list. Definitely one of my favorite horror films of uh, the last year, and it would have been in my top uh, <laughs> my top seven if I had been able to do that, but I was, uh, I was delegated to a top six, so can't recommend Titany enough um, and definitely go and check it out if you're able to. Next up is going to be Welcome to Raccoon City, uh, Resident Evil from Johannes Roberts, um, which once again sees Raccoon City falling prey to the predatory tactics of uh, the pharmaceutical giant, the Umbrella Corporation. For anybody that is familiar with the game series and whatnot, Umbrella basically brings about a zombie plague through their pharmaceutical research and whatnot, and then seeing the ways in which they exploit that and the whole conspiracy aspect and whatnot. Uh, I will say I'm a fan of Roberts's 47 Meters films, uh, even the sequel, which I know a lot of people did not like. Um, he has a great job of adding a certain level of flair and just unfiltered violence to his movies that I would say, like, especially the 47 Meters movies, they're very simplistic, but he's able to capitalize on not only the sort of restricted setting of the deep water floor, or in the sequel when they kind of go in these ruins and whatnot. And he just has a unflinching ability to, or approach to violence in that it just, it can come out of nowhere at a moment's notice. And, you know, even if the sequel, uh, 47 Meters Down in Cage, was not as well received, I still think he did better job than most probably would in doing a sequel to their own film. Um, and it was one that I definitely enjoyed, again, his ability to sort of capture a sense of space and atmosphere and give it a certain amount of texture that it felt just different enough from the first film. And so I have to follow that up with the fact that I am admittedly not a fan of the other Resident Evil movies that have been done, other than the first film maybe, which I thought was an okay introduction. Um, you know, that's perfectly fine. Everybody has their own opinion, fan base for those past films with uh, Mila Jolovich and whatnot that really enjoy them. And they never felt like Resident Evil to me. And that has always been the big thing where 
people get into this conversation where, oh, why are you remaking? Why are you adapting? Why don't you just make it something that's similar, but it's your own and it's got this own name to it. And that's how I always felt about the Resident Evil movies uh, previously. They never captured the tone, the terror, or the texture of the games for me, at least. Um, other than, you know, the Umbrella Corporation, their zombies, you get a couple of staples from the games in the movies, which, yeah, you know, when I saw it back in the day, I thought it was cool. But in revisiting it, it always just felt like, well, this is a zombie movie that has some familiar elements, maybe, or variables in terms of it being characters I recognize, a setting, the overall conspiracy, and of course, the undead. But it never felt like the games to me. And for as flawed as Welcome to Raccoon City actually ends up being, I think that Johannes does such a fantastic job of capturing the feel of Resident Evil. And that's something that I don't think previously has been done. And while the film I find to be pretty middling overall, I still think that this is a solid adaptation. And mostly, again, it's because there is the fact that this is the daunting task of combining Resident Evil 1 and 2 in terms of the games. So that, I think, is a little overly ambitious because, you know, there's <laughs> those are 10 plus hour experiences and worlds and characters and relationships and plot points and things that are all being smushed into what is a little bit longer than a 90 minute movie. So that on the face value is going to make for something that is more messy than I think it should be for being serving what is ultimately a reboot and uh, I would say in some ways a remake. So that in and of itself I think is a little ill-conceived, but at the same time I think it's undeniable that for fans of the game, when you watch this film, it does such a great job of capturing the look and the feel of the environments that are most prevalent in Resident Evil 1 and 2. Primarily being the town of Raccoon City, the Spencer Mansion, you get to have uh, the Raccoon City Police Department, you get to explore that massive foray, which I think in the games is one of the most iconic things ever, and just in terms of getting to open up the game with this massive sprawling environment that's somewhat familiar, but then very grandiose for just being like a police station. And I think that like capturing the dark halls of the Spencer Mansion is something that sounds easier than it actually is because, again, previously they had not really been able to do that or even just in terms of like zombie movies in general that have clearly drawn clear influences from Resident Evil have tried to kind of do a Spencer Mansion-esque thing before uh, in some cases, but this I find just felt like it was directly pulled from the game in the most authentic way possible, not just as a reference point, but actually giving this place a the sense that it actually kind of complements the world of Resident Evil and that feeling and that tone of Resident Evil um, in a way that largely made me not overlook, but it kind of like softened me a little bit on the elements that I was not a fan of. Uh, again, in terms of it being the plot being overly messy because it tries to do so much in such a short amount of time. Uh, I generally wonder if this had been a little longer, if they had been able to flesh out both the RE1 and RE2 storylines. I don't necessarily know how successful that would be again, but I think that giving it a little more breathing room might have actually ended up helping it because it does have this very sort of stop and start feel to it when they're diving in between the interconnected storylines and just the bl general blending of them. I think also that the movie starts pretty strongly implying that the reason for Raccoon City's decline and the fact that it is very much portrayed as this blue collar town that is essentially dying a slow death and whatnot. There's only like people that were raised there that still live there. All the businesses are basically shutting down. And that's because, and that's because 
the Umbrella Corporation has decided that after investing billions of dollars into building this facility, that they are going to now pull out of Raccoon City, which I don't think it's a stretch to say parallels a lot of like real world issues that small towns I'm thinking in terms of like nothing as diabolical as a uh, as a pharmaceutical company that's developing bioweapons and whatnot. But thinking about like mining towns in the United States and things like that, where these companies come in and invest all this money. And then as soon as things start to be in a downward trend in terms of profits and whatnot, they're like, well, we've invested so heavily in this town that it can't possibly coexist on its own without us. And now we're going to just leave and abandon the town, basically. Um, that's an element that the film pretty heavily implies they're going to be dabbling in from the outset. And then it kind of doesn't really touch upon that again in a meaningful way. Granted, I'm never going into an adaptation of a video game movie expecting to have this this strongly crafted real world sentiment, but at the same time, it seemed like an interesting plot angle to tackle that has not been tackled in these games or movies before in a way that I thought could have been meaningful and it could have been special and given the story a little more personality or a little more individuality from the source material. Again, not to say I have a problem with them wanting to adapt straight from the games, but at the same time, it lends itself to the idea that like, hey, maybe you could have done a little bit more to separate it from that identity in terms of fleshing out elements that previous films and even games to a certain extent in the Resident Evil universe had not necessarily done before. Um, so that's an element that I thought could have been expanded on a bit, but was not. I will say though, Roberts's understanding or, you know, I don't, I don't know much about whether he likes games or not, but from this film, he at least feels like he is familiar with the source material in a way that some video game adaptations have been directed by people where it's like, well, this is kind of just like, a, without without uh, naming names, like you're clearly just cashing in on the popularity of this game franchise. Whereas with this, the series has already been so profitable, whether it be the films or the games, and they could have just continued with the direction that these movies had gone in. So I think that a, it's important to take this in a route that maybe feels a little more in line with the games, but that's mainly because I think he has an understanding of what makes those games special. Now, the shortcomings of the film that I've already mentioned, they could be flaws of his own or flaws of just trying to do too much in a short amount of time, but there's still the general feeling that he understands the world of Resident Evil in a way that I can appreciate. And, you know, that might be through some of the set dressing, set designs, some of the Easter eggs, which maybe are a little shoehorned in here and there, but I think that it's a film that I enjoyed looking at more than I thought I would, given my uh, my distaste for the previous films that are out there within the uh, Resident Evil franchise. I will say, though, a massive sticking point for me is the portrayal of some of the characters, and I don't think it has much to do with the performances, because I think that for the most part, this is a pretty strong cast. You've got Robbie Amell, Tom Hopper, uh, Kea Skoldolero as uh, Claire Redfield, um, and then you've got Avon Jogia as Leon Kennedy. And I think I'm going to start with Leon's portrayal because he is, this is probably the worst way that you could write this character and the most confusing. And again, this has nothing to do with the performances. It's more so just the way that this character is written. Um, I'm not saying that I need Leon Kennedy to be, he is very much the rookie from Res, from Resi 2. At the same time though, and I understand he's not supposed to be portrayed as like the super soldier that he becomes in the games, uh, but he plays such a 
lumbering oaf and a doofus that it's very confusing why they chose to lean into this route considering he's never really portrayed as that in the games. Especially in Resident Evil 2, like he's the rookie, so it makes sense that he doesn't know his way around anywhere, he's learning the ropes as it were. But in this, he's kind of just like supposed to be there for comedic relief and none of the jokes that they have for him land. Him being a doofus, you're almost like, well, he's just an idiot, so why do I care about him? Which again, is so at odds with the portrayal in the games. And in general, like, I, I just don't find that it brings anything to the role. If he had just played it straight and it, he would have kind of maybe just blended in more with the other characters, which I don't think necessarily leave that much of an impressionable mark, but they fill the role or they at least look the part. Whereas with his character, it's kind of just like this vessel for some really bad jokes and cheesiness that doesn't add anything to the overall movie. And it's just, it was a very confusing decision considering there's no basis for that. And I would be okay with them exploring a new angle for that character, but the idea that he's going to be just comedic relief doesn't jive with the overall tone of the film and it being more in line with horror in a way that I don't feel the previous films had been. Um, and so his character is kind of like a real sore spot for me with this movie because it's so out of place and so distracting that I don't see how they were this, they settled on that direction. But anyways, I will say though, in rounding out my uh, brief bit on Welcome to Raccoon City, would be that this movie probably has the single best depiction of survival horror in a movie ever, I think. And it's one scene, it's very brief, it's probably a hand, it's probably 30 to 45 seconds, but it so perfectly encapsulates the survival horror experience to a degree that film never has. And again, I think that that is a testament to Roberts' ability to add a certain level of flair and just viscerally shocking violence um, in a way that feels, and I guess, Maybe his, the carefree nature in which he's able to input violence into his films where it doesn't feel like it's coming up or it kind of supersedes a lot of the moments that came before it. I will say again, like I think the makeup design in this and uh, prosthetics are okay. The CGI is not my favorite, but I don't think it's as bad as some people have claimed. And the zombie kills themselves are not all necessarily very memorable. But I think this one moment is almost worth watching the entire movie for, given the things that I praised it for earlier. But also this one moment is really better than any other, I think, survival horror moment that I've ever seen or films that have tried to be homages to a lot of survival horror games. This is by far the best example of that. And it's a brief scene, but it left quite the impression on me. And, you know, the film ends on a bit of a whimper, like they kind of are just running to that finish line, trying to tie up these two massive storylines. But... I think that it does a great job at differentiating itself from the previous films and it makes me want to see a sequel um, or at least a continuation of this very specific lane um, and you know I've seen in some interviews that he's expressed interest in like adapting several of the other Resident Evil films and I would like to see him do a solo more evenly paced maybe sequel something that picks one of the games next in the series and then fleshes it out in a way that it is a singular film experience rather than like, hey, let's throw four, five, and six into the mix in one film. Like that seems like a recipe for disaster. So, you know, Welcome to Raccoon City Resident Evil is definitely not one of my favorites, but I think that it does deserve a little more credit than it's been getting. I think it's a perfectly watchable zombie film for people that aren't fans of Resident Evil and for fans that are fond of Resident Evil. 
it does a good job, I think, of giving us a different flavor of Resi in a way that we haven't gotten before, and it's what I much rather prefer to what we've been getting. So, you know, I would say probably when Welcome to Raccoon City ends up on a streaming service inevitably, it's worth throwing on. It's not going to be one of your favorites, more than likely, and, you know, people that appreciated the Mila era of Resident Evil films might really not like it if they had been a fan of those, but at the end of the day, I think it is a sturdy enough adaptation of a video game, which is very difficult and more often than not we've seen over time have failed at doing just that. And I think that this does a good enough job of establishing a new tone that's more in line with the games, even if it does still fumble the ball occasionally. My next film is one that, <laughs> you know, if I was able to enjoy it uh, on a plane, it double masked because of COVID and whatnot, uh, I think you guys will be able to enjoy it in a little more of an ideal setting on the comfort of your couch. That being Meander from Mathia Turi. This is a film that I think does a good enough job of evolving on some very familiar subgenres of horror. That being, it feels like it's kind of a combination of films such as Saw, Cube, Escape Room, in that this woman finds herself locked in a series of bizarre tubes that are filled with dangerous traps and whatnot. And a majority of the film is her trying to go through these various traps that are ever evolving in this random series of tubes. I think that it is very simplistic, but I think Turi does a good enough job of capturing this movie in a new, maybe not a new, but in a more refined way that really does shoot around and hide the limitations that I'm sure this very small indie film had. Uh, I think this film looks good for what it is. It's very restrictive, very claustrophobia inducing. It does have a sci-fi horror element to it. Again, this is one that I don't want to really delve into the plot more than just kind of what you see on the, uh, on the old box cover. But I thought that it did a good job of capitalizing on its small scale by giving it a good amount of production value and like I said, it really is very claustrophobia inducing, which when you were double masked on an airplane at uh, 30,000 feet or whatever, I thought really made for a, uh, a more anxiety inducing experience than I thought. And even on its own, I would say that this is one of the better films that just from the way that it looks and the way that it's shot, it does enough to differentiate itself, I think, from Saw while not being as, you know, torture porny. Uh, I think that it it has a sort of like an emotional element to it that is definitely stronger than a lot of the influences that I mentioned before, while not necessarily being all that deep or remarkable outside of that context. Um, I will say though, even though I'm not going to delve into much about the premise or the plot, other than what I've already said, I would not dive into this expecting a lot of answers to the sort of questions and mystery that are, uh, it's shrouded in. Uh, I think that it's an intriguing, if not sort of a thin blending of horror and sci-fi. Uh, that being said, I enjoyed it for what it was. It's, I think, less than 90 minutes, and it is one of the more memorable sort of homages to not better films, but more popular films, I would say, that are out there in terms of this specific subgenre. So I would definitely check this out, and I think that for less than 90 minutes, it has its entertaining moments. And you know, Gaia Weiss, who plays uh, the protagonist, Lisa, I think does a good job of working with what she has, which is very little. Um, so I think that there's a, some emotional beats to the movie and kind of delving into her character and what she has dealt with in what now seems like a past life now that she's uh, in a series of tubes filled with deadly traps. Enough that it makes it a little more of a standout than I thought something like the first escape room, maybe. But at the same time, 
I wouldn't go into this expecting this to be the next big film in this sort of subgenre of horror. But this is one that Meander, which I believe is currently on uh, Amazon Prime, it's worth checking out if you've got that sort of claustrophobic, trap-inducing uh, itch. This, I think, scratches that well enough for what it is. My next film is probably one of my favorite films of last year. It would have been on my top list again if I had done a top 10, but I did not. That would be The Trip, which is on Netflix, and that's from director Tommy Workwall, who is behind the film's Dead Snow, and I believe Dead Snow too. So as I've said, I'm going to delve into brief spoilers potentially throughout the episode. Not, not enough to ruin anything, but I am going to mention a couple of things. And with this film, I need to give a trigger warning for sexual assault. The trip has about 10 minutes in it that I think are completely unnecessary that basically revolve around characters threatening to uh, rape other characters. It's It never delves into showing that or actually having that play out, but it is this weird 10 minutes where for whatever reason, it might be his dark humor sensibilities, not to make excuses, but to try to maybe understand without justifying it, the director's mindset with this. And it is more his dark tinge of humor, I suppose, but it kind of just comes off as edgy for the sake of being edgy. And it's a pretty tired type of joke to make, if I'm being honest. And it's one that had it been just like this fleeting offhanded thing, I would be like, well, I would still feel the same way about it, but it would be such a small part of the movie. But it feels like there's a good up to 10 minute segment of the film towards the middle half where you're, he just kind of keeps coming back to this type of joke. And it's pretty overbearing. And it really, you know, I showed it to a couple of buddies that all have similar uh, dark humor, horror sensibilities that I do with certain films. And like, we were all fans of Dead Snow, but it really is sort of like slamming on the brakes to what otherwise I think is one of the better home invasion horror movies that has dark humor tinge to it that this moment just kind of like completely brings all of that to a halt. And not to say that it loses goodwill or that I wouldn't rewatch the film because I have since I saw it, but it's just such a weird sort of juvenile section of the movie that doesn't add anything. I mean, first and foremost, it's not funny, but it just kind of like keeps hitting on that for a considerable amount of time, which at the long run feels like padding because when I went back to rewatch the trip, it was the thing where I was like, yeah, this could have been 10 minutes shorter, or 15 minutes shorter, and I know where I would have taken the 10 minutes out of the film right away because it's this section. So I felt I needed to include that in what otherwise, I think, a film that does not have a lot of that in it. It's segmented to that 10 minute stint of the film, and then the rest of the film doesn't have that in it. So I still feel that it succeeds a lot with the premise that it has. And overall, this is a film that has two terrific performances from uh, Numi Rapace and Askel Henny. And that would be them playing Lisa and Lars respectively, who are these eager, <laughs> this married couple that are very eager to end their marriage by killing one another uh, at a remote cabin over the course of the weekend. But they soon find themselves facing an even bigger threat that forces them to put aside their differences, take that hate for one another and channel it into a new target. That being, I don't want to tell you. <laughs> it's the type of thing where it definitely has a payoff in terms of the blending of violence and dark humor in a way that feels very in line with Dead Snow while not being, uh, I think it is a little more well thought out in terms of the characters, their relationships, the writing even is definitely a lot stronger, uh, the, which is a compliment to also the performances that are what are driving this movie. Again, 
Those 10 minutes themselves, I thought were so out of place and out of line with what otherwise I think is a really fantastic and strong blending of dark humor and this really like brutal, unrestrained, slapsticky, super gory approach to violence that is very in line again with something like Dead Snow, which kind of like goes zero to a hundred. And you know, this is a film that for the first half is all gas. And then unfortunately it slams on the brakes pretty hard with that 10 minutes. And then it's right back to the gas for that finale that is uh, as blood soaked and brutal as I think everybody that is a fan of these dark comedy horror movies uh, would really want. Now my next film is one that I have to caveat also by saying, I've never seen any other films in the Wrong Turn series, and I'm, it's one that I'm not familiar with past the sort of like, oh, it's redneck mutants that are in the woods, and I know that I think there's six or seven sequels. I don't even know how many there are. Uh, that shows you my level of involvement with the series, but I think that Mike P. Nelson actually did a pretty solid job of rebooting this franchise, and I say that again as somebody that is not familiar with the series, but if this were my first introduction to the series, I would be surprised that nobody had thought to do this ahead of time. So for those that don't know, the past Wrong Turn Slasher series, which was about six films, was all about these teens that go into the woods, which are generally in the Appalachian Trail or down south somewhere. And there's mutant rednecks basically that want to kill or do worse to certain people. Uh, these teens basically that are there. And I don't know anything about those movies. I can't comment on them. but. Uh, my general read of things and just like people that I've talked to or read their reviews of it's like okay this is a more niche slasher series that maybe didn't necessarily ever achieve what it set out to do in a meaningful way that's fine neither here nor there I'm not gonna really use that as the basis for why I enjoyed Wrong Turn rather it surprises me that Mike P. Nelson's approach had not been done previously and that being the spin is that and this is going to be a little more of a spoiler, but it's pretty clear, I think, from watching the material, the marketing materials, that they went in a new direction. In that, it's not mutant rednecks. It is people that are basically like survivalists. It's a cult that lives out in the woods. And they've kind of reverted back to this non-technology, primitive way of life. Basically, teens that are wandering through the woods with cell phones and all this other stuff are infringing, apparently, on that way of life. So they view them as a threat. They kidnap them, they start falling prey to a lot of these primitive traps that have been set out in the woods to deter or kill people that are going to venture onto their property and whatnot. Um, and so I think that that is a much more grounded take on it. And it also lends a lot in terms of, you don't, you're not just gonna stick on one sort of angle for wrong turn, right? It has, It is a slasher, but there's also now this sort of saw component to it where, okay, we've got to avoid these deadly death traps and then oh, there's cultists that'll kill us, or the people get kidnapped and kind of inducted into this sycophant uh, way of life that these cultists live in. And I think that that gives you more avenues for creative freedom in dabbling in what wrong turn could turn into. Uh, whereas when you have the sort of stringent confines of the past iterations where they were these just straight up slashers, you're in that one lane. And once you've seen the first film and you're gonna keep making sequels, you kind of already know what you're going to get in terms of, at least in that case, maybe they were never able to capitalize on that premise again as they did in the first one because it, most of those were straight to DVD. So they're going to have a restricted budget and whatnot. And I don't even know if the Wrong Turn reboot had a theatrical release. I think it was only digital, like, you know, a pandemic brain. I can't remember, but it's the type of thing where it's not going to have the same studio confidence or budget behind it that the original did just because of the 
stigma surrounding the originals. And this seems like the smartest approach in that Nelson does a great job, I think, of what he's working with. Let me rephrase that. He does a good job of rebooting uh, a slasher franchise that's got six sequels. So I think from a pure horror perspective, this movie capitalizes on a familiar premise in a more interesting way that gives him more creative freedom and makes for generally a handful of really creepy scenes. Uh, the cult and the different things that he's able to instill in the viewer through their practices is quite disturbing and fucked up in a way that I don't know the original films ever actually capitalized on other than like, hey, this person got their throat slit or gutted or whatnot, which is fine. But I think that the reboot does a good job of introducing a variety of types of horrors or scares that stuck with me. I will say though, you know, for as strong as a direction or drive that this film has, this has some of the worst writing that I think I'd seen in a film from last year. None of the characters are likable. Somehow they got Matthew Modine to be in this and he's only in it periodically and frankly doesn't add anything to the movie. Uh, the cast of teens, they're completely forgettable. The general kind of like, they facilitate the slasher tropes in a film that's not a slasher. So that is a little jarring for me. There's also just the writing is very heavily tinged in, you know, like, trendy dialogue that feels just like a series of buzzwords. Um, you know, it's kind of this tired portrayal largely of Southerners as being degenerate ingrates and things like that, which it just feels, it's kind of embarrassing to be honest, just because it is so played out and it's so trope heavy and it plays out exactly like you would expect. Um, and the fact that they, the dialogue has a heavy, heavy sprinkling of just kind of like buzzwords and hashtags that you would expect given sort of our political climate, but it's not doing, it's not, there's no issue with discussing these things. It's more just the way that it is haphazardly thrown in this, that it is just to get a reaction and it doesn't have anything really to say with those. And it further facilitates this, again, tired portrayal of Southerners as just being like people wallowing in their own shit, which is pretty tired at this point and doesn't add anything again to the movie. And furthermore, it's just these teen, it's these group of actors that, you know, they don't have much to work with dialogue wise, but they also don't have much to bring to the table themselves. So that kind of can make for a groan inducing, uh, more than, more than a handful of groan inducing moments that kind of just annoyed me to the degree where I was like, let's get back to the more interesting cult angle with survivalists and living in isolation and the traps and whatnot. I will say also, this has an incredibly disturbing sequence towards the end of it. That's very memorable that again, I don't, my general knowledge of the original wrong turn films and in talking with people, it's more these kind of just like broad recollections of the film rather than any one individual moment. And for me, this wrong turn reboot has two distinct moments in it, which I think is all you can really ask for with a reboot of a series that's not as widely loved or regarded as some of the other ones. And, you know, I think that if you continue in this direction if, again due to COVID brain I forget how successful this movie was I think it wasn't very because of the being just on streaming but Wrong Turn feels like a movie that is actually giving a second wind to a franchise that has been dormant for so long and hopefully evolving on it in some new and exciting ways because this I thought was one of the more standout reboots while not being perfect or one of my favorite movies of last year for sure was not I think that it is a promising start in rebooting a franchise and it's furthermore just my belief that like 
Nothing is off limits in terms of rebooting and whatnot. It's more about, is a director going to impart their own vision on what a franchise could be? And, you know, in Nelson's case, his ability to remove the maybe elements of the original film, which funny enough are the main sort of the main staples of the Wrong Turn franchise, which was mutant rednecks and removing the mutant part. I think that that actually gives this movie a little more creative freedom because you don't know where it's building to and you don't know how this movie could build in a sequel, which I assume we will inevitably get just the way that these things go. Anyways, if Wrong Term is on one of your streaming services at some point, I think it's worth checking out. It's not going to be your favorite film more than likely. And, you know, granted, I don't know how fans of the original series are going to feel about this new uh, avenue that Wrong Turn's taking, but it feels more like a right turn. Forgive me, I apologize. Wrong Turn feels like it is a step in the right direction, even if there's a considerable amount of steps to go in making this more of a viable franchise that can justify a sequel or even multiple sequels. So, you know, Wrong Turn, not going to be one of your favorites more than likely, and it wasn't one of my favorites, but I think it stands as a reboot that is moving in the right direction or moving a franchise in the right direction. My next film is going to be Coming Home in the Dark from James Ashcroft, a really, really simplistic film that capitalizes on a sense of atmosphere and some strong performances, despite the fact that it is very small scale, which is the sense that these ruthless drifters take a school teacher and his family on a nightmarish road trip that forces the school teacher to confront his past self. Again, don't want to delve too much into the plot of this one other than that, just because it takes some really twisted turns. It does a lot with very little. It explores a certain level of kind of like trauma and things like that and how that plays out in shaping a person's life. Um, and it has some very brutal moments. And again, for as small scale and clearly low budget filmmaking as this was, it does a lot with very little. And I think that a big part of that is thanks to Daniel Gillies, who is uh, plays Mandrake, who is one of the ruthless drifters that kind of holds the family at bay. And he does a fantastic job of just being sinister, very understated for a lot of the movie, but then he's able to really just chill you to the bone with his dialogue and the way he just carries it overall. And the film I have to give props to, you know, I'm somebody that likes darker films that is appreciative of directors that are willing to take big swings, whether or not they necessarily have a payoff. And Coming Home in the Dark, I'll just say, has a very unrestrained opening that really dabbles in meanness and sort of just nastiness in a way that I don't think a lot of filmmakers would be willing to do right off the bat, especially, I believe this is James Ashcroft's first feature film. This is one that does have some massive balls on it. I think for the way that it begins, how off-putting that can be to a majority of audiences, and I'm alluding to something that does not require trigger warning like when I was talking about the trip, this is just a film that I think takes some big swings and capitalizes on that in a way that is very ballsy. And for me, it works in a way that I don't know a lot of first-time filmmakers necessarily always capture on. Doesn't pull any punches, and it's a film that I hope people go check out because it's one that does a lot in terms of in the face of its simplicity. Now, my next film is going to be somewhat similar to the uh, trap-oriented nature of Meander, and that being that it is Escape Room, Tournament of Champions, from uh, Adam Robitel once again, returning to direct the sequel. Now, this is a series that I think a lot of people describe as being Saw Light, and while I don't disagree with that, I don't think it deserves the same amount of stigma that goes along with that sort of classification. I think that 
Escape Room was a perfectly serviceable entry to horror movie it being PG-13. Yeah, it's going to have to pull certain punches in terms of its death or carnage and gore and things like that. But where Robitel makes it memorable and it actually, I think, differentiates it from something like Saw, which again, lots of people compare it to, it capitalizes on set design and trap design in a way that I don't think the Saw movies ever did. Escape Room, the original, did a great job of giving us a variety of escape rooms that each had their own identity and puzzles in it that felt logical to the theme of the escape room themselves. Um, and while I did think that it got bogged down in the more conspiracy aspect that kind of like what's going on behind the scenes and sort of the world building that went along with that and the vein of something like Marvel, I still wanted to see another one because it had such strong set design and whatnot. And the sequel sets it up, Tournament of Champions, so that way six people that are champions of previous escape rooms and we see returning characters from the first film and then you get a bevy of uh, new characters that we've never met before, but they are supposed to be people that are the champions of other escape rooms, so why wouldn't they be well-equipped to handle this uh, a new round of hellish games and whatnot? Um, and much like the original, I think Tournament of Champions does a good job of providing a variety of escape rooms, a good enough design of sets, and everything like that and giving a production value that nothing feels like it is sort of retreading on what the previous one did in terms of the traps and uh, escape rooms and whatnot, but at the same time doing just enough to differentiate itself from something like Saw. Um, that being said, I think that it suffers in the same ways that the escape original escape room did in that it has this, this eagerness and it's over eagerness, I think, to capitalize on the conspiracy angle, like the company that's behind all of this what else are they behind? How, how far reaching is their influence? The government, the police, and all these things? None of that, I think, is interesting. It certainly does not make us care about these characters anymore, because granted, I don't find that any of the characters are very strong. And, you know, bringing back characters from the original, yeah, it allows you to, you know, be a natural continuation of that story. You don't have to waste a lot of time in the backstory, but the film still does. Escape Room still spends about 10 to 15 minutes catching us up with them. And, you know, it introduces what on paper is somewhat of an interesting aspect and that being the survivors, of course, are all grippled with PTSD from this horrific ordeal. And, you know, that's not unreasonable, I think, to want to highlight that. And it could be an interesting plot development. It's just none of the characters or the performances for that matter are able to really handle that in a way that comes off as meaningful. It kind of just feels a, as a placeholder or it just kind of feels like a lazy connecting to the original film. Maybe not lazy, but just not as engaging as they seem to think that it is. Um, that being said, I think that Tournament of Champions has a fantastic opening with a very hectic and intricate puzzle. That being, you know, spoiler, it being a subway car that is becoming electrified and they have to kind of run around and solve the various puzzles so they can escape the train car. I won't delve into it more than that, but I think that it is a great balancing of ramping tension and the car getting more electrified the closer they get to achieving their goal, and then ultimately just the creativity behind the puzzle itself that would allow them to escape. Um, and that, I think, can be said for a majority of the traps in this or the escape rooms in this. You know, I keep, I keep swapping between traps and uh, escape rooms and whatnot, but I think that this movie capitalized on the right elements while unfortunately continuing the elements from the original that I'm not taken with, that I don't think necessarily are doing it any favors and ends up wasting some of the runtime, considering this is a movie that's less than 90 minutes, I think, 
and it feels like there's about 10 or 15 minutes in it that are just again spent on this conspiracy angle or kind of like trying to uncover the mystery behind the scenes that you can kind of see like the MCU blueprint there in a way that doesn't feel it, it's not that it's disingenuous it's just that it's like okay clearly you're trying to build to something but I personally don't care about that and I don't think that that is ever I don't think that's ever capitalized on in a way that actually makes it meaningful or engaging to the narrative. I just want more traps that are as intricately designed and have as smart of a layout as they are in Escape Room and in uh, Tournament of Champions. So that being said, if you enjoyed uh, the original Escape Room, I think you'll enjoy this one as well. And, you know, personally, I would not mind if this became a bi-yearly franchise. I think that so long as the creative team is able to keep coming up with interesting escape rooms that are differentiating from the one that came before it or the ones that were in films that came before it, this is a series that has some legs to it. And it is a strong example, I think, of introductory horror. You know, people that want something like Saw, you're never going to get that with Escape Room. What it does is it makes for an experience that is entertaining for people that are well-versed in horror that maybe even enjoy more extreme versions of horror. But at the same time, I think that it is a more than adequate bridging of the gap between people that are getting into horror as kids and then, you know, becoming teens and whatnot that want to get into more scary horror or different types of horror. I find Escape Room completely inoffensive in that regard. Escape Room is inoffensive in its being a bridging the gap horror film that can still be enjoyed by people that are more well-versed in horror. And for that, I think that's an accomplishment in and of itself and one that if it's going to be bi-yearly, I don't mind diving into one of these, you know, and I don't know if I would say shutting, it sounds disingenuous to be like, oh, shut your brain off and enjoy it. But it's something that kind of scratches that trap itch in a way that feels more unique than some of the other trap films out there, or at least it is done with a certain flair that eludes the other ones. So, you know, Escape Room Tournament of Champions is a film that, I and I hate the word guilty pleasure and I'll overuse it, it feels like a perfectly serviceable sequel for a franchise that I've enjoyed. And I think that people don't give enough credit in terms of what it's able to achieve given maybe the uh, the somewhat handcuffing of that PG-13 rating. But at the very least, I think that that is a film that got overlooked in a lot of ways considering it did what it needed to do, even if the series overall has some work to do in propelling this forwards into the inevitable third and probably fourth sequel that we'll get. Next up is a film that, while released in 2020, It was released in October of 2020, and it could not have been in theaters for more than three or four days. (laughs) Uh, So in that regard, I'm considering it a 2021 film, and you know, a lot of people's best of 2021 year lists have included this because it didn't get a digital release until, I believe, February of 2021, um, which was the way that I believe most people saw it, because this was probably at the height of the pandemic before our new height. unfortunately. So The Empty Man from David Pryor. This is a film that, you know, again, it dabbles in so many different things that it would be a disservice to you to spoil a majority of those. So I will just say that it is, it's a fantastic blending of cosmic horror, of a thriller, of a detective. It kind of has a seven vibe to it, but don't let that kind of like be the benchmark for your expectations. Um, But I think that The Empty Man does a really great job of taking a simplistic premise and also, you know, giving it a healthy dose of like folk horror and delving into that and how the cosmic elements maybe that are behind a lot of folk horror and this idea that once something has you, it has you. And 
no matter the trials and tribulations you go through, more than likely it's going to have a pretty dismal uh, ending for a character. But this is about a ex-cop that comes across a secretive group that is attempting to summon this sort of like terrifying supernatural entity while he is investigating this very simplistic sort of just missing girl uh, case. And, you know, first and foremost, I didn't know anything about David Pryor or even the Empty Man comic series that this is adapted from. My main draw initially was James Badge Dale being the lead. And, you know, he's somebody that has cropped up in a lot of movies and series. And he's always had this very kind of stoic attitude and demeanor behind him. And, you know, he played a cop in, or an ex-cop rather, in the standoff at Sparrow Creek, which is another film that, while it not being a horror movie, it's a movie that I think takes a very seemingly simplistic premise and does a lot with it. And a lot of that is thanks to his sort of stoicism that no matter the twists and turns that these movies take, he is very steadfast in who he is. And I think that that's something that grounds the viewer in a way that for as wild and weird as some of these movies can get, he does a very good job, I think, of grounding them in a way that never really allows you to be taken out of the experience. Um, I will say, right off the bat, The Empty Man, fantastic opening. Probably one of the best openings of any horror film of the last year, year and a half. And that is because the opening of the movie is about a 20-minute horror movie in and of itself. Much in the same vein as, you know, it's a kind of a strange comparison, but it structurally is very true to it. And that being the Friday the 13th remake from 2009. That movie, the first 15, 20 minutes of it, is its own self-contained movie, basically, that kind of does a great job of encapsulating what the viewer is in store for for the remainder of that movie's runtime. The Empty Man is the same exact way. Um, you have this 20-minute opening that dabbles in all of the different, this very lovely little disturbing cocktail of all the genre influences and uh, subgenres that I mentioned, that being, you know, folk horror, a slasher, detective, and there's a lot of just evocative imagery right from the outset, um, and that being some real, a really stellar creature design, or skeleton design rather, which I'm sure people have seen online, but I won't delve into it too much. But, you know, The Empty Man's a movie that surprised me with how much it was able to do, and granted, it's not a surprise that this movie was able to do so much as it does because it does run pretty long, not gonna lie. It runs a little too long. Um, it should not be almost two hours long and it might even be longer than that. And that's how, again, COVID brain. Um, you know, the movie does so much that it does get lost in the weeds and it could have benefited from an editor. But I think that it does enough with these subgenres that's interesting and is surprising and shocking in a way that I don't always... Movies that try to touch upon all these different genre influences blending into that something that's somewhat coherent, um, I think is harder than it is. I don't think that they necessarily get a lot of credit for that. So in that regard, I think this movie does enough that it is more than worthy of checking out. And, you know, it, ha it, it does have a very ambiguous uh, aspect to it, given the sort of cosmic horror nature and the ways in which that flows throughout the entire film. But I think that it does a great job at what it actually sets out to do. And, you know, I can't speak to it from an adaptation standpoint, but this is a movie that I think deserves more credit. And it's a shame that, well, you know, it's a double-edged sword. This is a movie that's definitely going to become popular through cult status. Like people are finally able to discover it and whatnot. It's on streaming now, I believe. Um, it's just a shame it didn't get the box office return that I think that it deserved because it's wholly unique and it does something that I don't know a lot of movies from 2021 were able to do. So, The Empty Man, 
definitely check that out, even though it is a long one. So <laughs> make sure you buckle in for that. All right, last one, because my voice is starting to go. I have not had to do a, uh, a single person episode in quite a long time, and this is now approaching almost an hour. So I'm going to kind of keep this one brief because this is a movie that I know a lot of people did not like, but it's a movie that I think did exactly what it was supposed to do, and that being Halloween Kills from uh, David Gordon Green. I'm a sucker for Halloween. Uh, I love the Halloween franchise. I loved uh, the reboot from 2018. I thought that was the perfect modern day reboot in terms of it doing what it needed to do. Reestablishing a horror icon in a way that feels more stylish, it feels more modernized, even if the story itself is maybe not the strongest aspect. You know, it's great getting to see Laurie Strode come back and seeing her character developed a little bit more in terms of like the trauma and what that had done to her and shaping her life. Um, I thought that was successfully done in the Halloween 2018. And Halloween Kills is, I think, a pretty undeniably messy movie. It tries to do a lot. The Strodes, whether or not I'm reading into the marketing too much, I think it was pretty heavily implied that Laurie Strode was going to, or the Strodes in general, were going to be much more pivotal in Halloween Kills. And they are but a sliver of what otherwise is a film that feels pretty disjointed, in my opinion. Um, so from that regard, I don't think the movie succeeds necessarily as well as it could. That being said, Halloween Kills fully leaned into the avenue of a slasher sequel that I love in that it ramps up the body count and it's sort of like the extrapolation of what a slasher sequel should be. The body count is much, much higher. It's much more stylized and almost to a ludicrous degree in terms of the uh, the damage that our old boy Mike Myers is able to dish out. Like one of the first instances that I love is when the firefighters basically show up to the house that he was imprisoned in and that was obviously supposed to be his tomb. And then of course, Mike Myers lives and comes out and then kills 10 different firefighters or whatever, a whole brigade basically with their own tools and implements in a way that is so over the top brutal and gory that you know, it kind of sung to my slasher loving heart uh, in a way that I hadn't necessarily attributed to the film in a while. You know, it feels unrestrained and unrestricted in a way that Michael Myers has not always been, or rather, he has not always been at the forefront of these like massive casualty set pieces. It's been over the course of a movie, maybe talking about the later films, he's killed a handful, two handfuls of people. It's over the course of a film. In the opening moments of Halloween Kills, he kind of like outdoes that in a single scene in a way that is very understanding of the sort of like bigger, the bigger is better mentality of sequels that is not necessarily always needed. But I think that in this, taking the body count and expanding upon it as heavily as they do um, actually makes for a super enjoyable movie for me. Um, and, you know, this is complemented by, of course, John Carpenter and his son's score, which is always welcomed. Um, and also, I think that it's interesting just in terms of like the disjointedness that I've seen people complain about a lot. And I even have my own qualms with it, right? It feels more like a series of vignettes in that Mike Myers is escape in this town again, and he's just preying upon townspeople. And while you're not getting a lot of sort of, there's not a lot of fleshing out with any particular group of this sort of mob that's forming. And, you know, the film tries to make a commentary on mob mentality, which I don't necessarily think says anything new or anything that, anybody wasn't already well aware of in terms of the entire town turning on Michael Myers, but people can get caught up in the crossfire as it were. I don't think that's necessarily an original angle, but it does provide that vignette style that is not unlike 
sort of the approach that they had in Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, that being that that is an anthology horror movie. And I sort of see an inkling of that in Halloween Kills, even if that might be a little bit of a stretch in that, okay, you're traveling around with all of these different people in one night, you're seeing their experiences, and then you're moving on to the next one. The movie doesn't convey that in a way that makes it really cohesive, uh, which is a shame, but at the same time, I think that it makes for a good enough setup for each of the kills, even if a lot of the story stuff, and especially the Strode's arc, feels extraneous or it doesn't feel like it's given the shine that it should given that they are the core of these movies supposedly and this does not do a good job of capitalizing on that um that being said highly enjoyed halloween kills um you know i think that it does what it needs to do in terms of it being the bigger bigger body count slasher sequel even if the film does fault in some pretty heavy ways um, throughout the rest of it but it's a movie that i enjoyed definitely more than most from what i've seen but it makes me excited for Halloween ends and, you know, the inevitable future iterations of Mike Myers we get in the future because, you know, I am very much enjoying this new trilogy and it kind of just reinvigorates my love of the character and thinking like, hmm, what other avenues can we take this down through other directors and things like that? So, you know, Halloween Kills, a movie that I enjoyed that I understand is not for everyone, but it is definitely a movie that I think I enjoyed more than some other slasher sequels I saw last year. So that's one that I've been... Uh, enjoying more so the more I've like kind of percolate and I've been able to look past some of its faults given how uh, the amount of gory carnage that Michael Myers is able to dish out but Halloween Kills one that I very much enjoyed even if you know even if it doesn't do the Scream Queens themselves that much justice which is a missed opportunity but hey there's one more of these movies in the trilogy coming out so we're looking forward to that as well so that's going to do it for uh, me and my honorable horror mentions of 2021 but I'm curious what were some of your favorite horror films of last year? Uh, and, you know, with the new year, I am very much looking forward to dabbling into a whole nother uh, batch of new horror movies of discussions on classic and maybe more contemporary horror films that I've missed with guests and whatnot. But uh, you guys should feel free to tweet the show at Daily Horror Pod or you can tweet at me at Not Funny Jay. Um, and, you know. Thanks again for listening. Uh, this Getting to dust off the podcast cobwebs for the first time in a while. I'm pretty sure I'm going to have a hoarse voice after this. Uh, granted, I haven't rambled by myself this much in a while, but I, uh, I will see you guys next Friday with an all-new episode of Daily Horror Habit.